Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop. Watch. Chop. Retrofit. Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop. This is a movie podcast and pop culture adjacent podcast. And uh, it's been a while since we've been on the air. Uh, the date of this recording is uh, mid-September. And uh, we're very excited to uh, kick off October, which is traditionally our horror film movie month. And uh, this year we decided to uh, focus on Hammer Horror Films. And Chelsea, you are unaware of what that is, correct? Correct. Okay. So okay. Chelsea has no idea what a Hammer Horror film is. And I thought that uh, for anyone else who is not familiar with the uh, the subgenre, um, it would be wise of us to bring in uh, an expert, uh, at least what I consider to be an expert, someone who I followed on Twitter for quite some time under the handle Hammer Gothic. Uh, we are very, very pleased today to bring in a special guest. Uh, his name's Dave, and he's coming to us from just outside of Liverpool. Uh, Dave? Hello. Hi, how are you doing? It's great to be here, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We're, we're thrilled to have you, and uh, hopefully we're going to give Chelsea a bit of an education. I need it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's it. Challenges, uh, the challenge has been presented. The gauntlet has been thrown down. So, Dave, let's start out pretty generally and kind of tell us about Hammer Films. What? When did they start? What were they all about? And kind of... Uh, what were they known for? Okay, well, Chelsea, because you don't know anything about Hammer, basically the main character is a big monster with a hammer. No, 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 I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> just trolling. Um, okay, this is probably what, I guess if, you, if you're not familiar with Hammer Horror, that's, you probably think it has something to do with an actual hammer. Uh, but actually the name comes from a stage comedian of the 1930s in British Music Hall or Vaudeville, as you'd call it in the States. And his name, well, his birth name was William Hines, and he was a bit of an entrepreneur. He was a bit of a music hall of vaudeville comedian, and uh, <clears throat> and he was being introduced on stage one time in, I think, the 1930s. And they said, well, what should we call your act? And he decided that because he was in a part of London called Hammersmith, he thought he'd call his double act with his friend Hammer and Smith, and that's where he got the name Hammer from. So he became known as Will Hammer. And then in 1934, because he was a bit of an entrepreneur and he, he, had, a, he had a hand in all sorts of businesses, um, and he thought, well, I'm, he, he was doing stage productions, he was doing, uh, he was doing his comedy, he had various businesses going, and he thought, I'll try my hand at some, uh, some films. I'll try and get into film distribution and film production. And so with his friend Enrique Carreras, he founded Hammer Film Productions or Hammer Productions uh, in 1934 and for the next couple of years they just they made a whole variety of films they made uh, their, their very first film was a, a comedy that's now lost it was called the private life of henry the ninth and i th think if i remember rightly it was based on a stage comedy uh, the following year they did one called uh, the mystery of the mary celeste uh, which became known on its u.s release as phantom ship and it actually starred one bella lugosi uh, oh. So there's a connection right now with a whole genre of horror, which I assume you're familiar with. Yes. Uh, of course, that was the that was the big the big thing during the 1930s worldwide in terms of gothic horror and the Draculas and the Frankenstein's. It was all Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, the Universal films. They just reigned in that genre. And uh, Bela Lugosi was brought over for this uh, sort of ghost story called Phantom Ship, and he actually got his biggest paycheck ever. Uh, for that film, even more than he ever had for a Dracula film or anything like that. Um, so that was one of Hammer's early productions. Another one was they brought um, Paul Robeson and Elizabeth Welsh, who were both African-American, very popular African-American singers and film stars at that time. They brought them over for a, a musical based on, on slavery. That was um, Song of Freedom in 1936. And so for those first few years, they made a, a real variety of films, not particularly horror. In fact, the only the only one that was horror was the Bela Lugosi film, and that was sort of a ghost story. So that was Hammer, the early days. And then they sort of went dormant for quite a few years. And then in 1948, they did a big relaunch as, as Hammer Film Productions, and they started making, again, a real variety of films. They did. Uh, they started off making uh, comedies and detective 
shows uh, based on BBC radio series, things like that. As they got into the 1950s, uh, they started making uh, sort of British film noirs, a few of which are really uh, quite neat. They take a lot from the sort of shadowy world of the of the popular American film noirs at the time. And they worked with an American producer, Robert Lippert, and they brought brought across uh, lots of American stars so that they could, you know, they could include these American stars and British casts as well. And they could film these rather low budget noirs and sell them on both sides of the Atlantic because they had the you know familiar faces that people knew from from film and and TV in America. So they so they did these noirs and they did they dabbled in various sort of horror and sci-fi subjects throughout the sort of late 40s and early 50s but they weren't full-blown horror by then. They were just a, a fairly successful very low budget fairly small film company. And uh, and then in the in the early to mid fifties, they they really hit it big. They made an adaptation of uh, Quatermass. I don't know if uh, Sean, you might be familiar with Quatermass if you've seen Hammer Horrors. Uh, Chelsea, I don't know if you're familiar with that that name at all. Quatermass. No. I, I am. It's 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 really amusing. <laughs> Quatermass was. Um, well, Nigel Neal was a creator, and he wrote a number of BBC plays about this scientist called Quatermass. Uh, he d- they did the Quatermass exper- uh, experiment, was a BBC serial, and it was sort of science fiction. It was all rocket ships and aliens and uh, various things, and that was an absolute hit on British TV. And so in the mid-'50s, Hammer Films decided, well, let's make this our next adaptation from TV. And so they made this kind of science fiction slash monster movie, and the big draw was that it was going to be an ex certificate film and of course i assume that's that's something you'd that's a term you'd be familiar with in the us as well you you i assume you don't have ex certificate films now but you did back then was that a thing like a rating yes yes uh the the mpaa were um they they assigned X to films like uh, Clockwork Orange. Okay. Uh, they okay. Were, yeah. You know, you know, considered to be either too violent or too sexy for general audiences. Okay. So this might be a dumb question. Is that different than like the NC seventeen rating or? It's it's yes. You you you've got a historic lens that you kind of have to look at it through and you know understand that what was sensational and too graphic for audiences then mm-hmm. are probably just R rated material today. So, so that's where these X certificates came from. Where, uh, and of course, you know, Dave can speak to that uh, in more in depth. But in England, you know, you had your censors uh, working feverishly to make sure that uh, films were, uh, you know, suitable for audiences. Great movie. Absolutely. I mean, they were they were very censorious on this side of the Atlantic, as around the same time. Indeed, it was it was the same in America, especially. You know, you had the whole thing in the '30s where it was quite. The, the restrictions were quite loose for a while and then you had the um you know the catholic film board or whatever it was and imposed a lot of restrictions and stuff like that and so over here yes you had the x certificate and that was a, adults only and and yes as you alluded to stuff that's very tame these days you know sex would be you know two lips meeting you know that would be that would be a sex <laughs> scene in those days yeah, so no. we're talking very tame stuff um, but Hammer saw a chance to capitalize on that. So they made this film of the Quatermass experiment. They brought across an American star, Brian Don Levy or Don Levy, uh, and he played Professor Quatermass, um, who, if I recall correctly, wasn't an American at all in the original script, but you know he was going to sell it on the other side of the Atlantic because he was a name that sort of a B or C list actor that, that people knew. And it's an incredible film even today. It's a Quatermass experiment. And by the way, the, the title was... They they changed experiment into uh, X the letter X experiment so that even on the posters you could see wow this is sensational this is really taboo and that's what drew the audiences in was they were going to see something really shocking which it was for that time not so much now but it's still it still really packs a punch and it comes across as really pioneering film it was a lot of it was in almost for the time documentary style. Uh, as if it was, uh, you know, a newsreel of the time or something. And it was about a mission into space where these three astronauts return to Earth and it's Professor Quatermass's project. They return to Earth and there's only one person left in the rocket and he's not speaking and he's gradually mutating into some sort of odd creature. 
and uh, it's a fantastic film. And that's where Hammer discovered that they were going to make a lot of money going down this X certificate route. So they started making more. They made a Quatermass sequel. They made their own Quatermass film, uh, which they, they wanted to bring Nigel Neal on board to to get the uh, get the rights to the character. And Nigel Neal, the scriptwriter, said uh, no, because he wasn't too happy about some of the things that uh, that had happened with the previous film, I think. So they, so they made a Quatermass in all but name, and it's called X, the unknown. Again, that X was really prominent uh, just to just to get the audience in. You know, and so that's where the that's where the monster and the horror stuff really began. And it did have its seeds in earlier Hammer films because, like I say, you had Bella Lugosi twenty years previously. Uh, you had quite a few um, dark, uh, quite horrific types of uh, of Hammer films. You had a few sci-fi things like Stolen Face and um, and the Four Sided Triangle, which was kind of a almost like a modern take on a Frankenstein type tale. But it wasn't full blooded horror until Quatermass. Uh, and then they started going down that route. And the one that really started them off was The Curse of Frankenstein. And it was the first re- sort of straight adaptation of the Frankenstein novel since Boris Karloff's iconic performance in 1931. And so what happened from there was that Hammer had found its biggest success yet and it had found it in the gothic horror genre. And it was it was brand new because it was it was the first time gothic horror a big gothic horror like that had been filmed in colour. I think it was probably the first colour Frankenstein film of all of them, although there had been attempts. I think The Son of Frankenstein was uh, with Boris Karloff. They originally wanted to film that in colour. Um, but there'd never been colour Dracula films and Frankenstein films, werewolf films, that type of stuff. So that's what Hammer pioneered. And when they saw they were having success with it, that's the line they went down. So even though they continued as a film company to work in all kinds of genres, and they were very good at other genres they did war films they did dramas they did noirs they did adventure films but the ones that remain in the public's memory to this day and the ones that they really had a big box office success with in that period from about 1957 until the early 60s and then and then through the 60s into 70s uh, gradually waning off was in those uh, relatively for the times um <clears throat> violent shocking full-blooded um, color gothic horrors with all those classic characters like Dracula, Frankenstein. They did The Mummy, they did The Phantom of the Opera, they did Jekyll and Hyde, um, and they did a few original monsters as well. They did they did an original uh, zombie film in the 1960s. They did The Reptile, all these different characters. But that was what that was what made it different from the earlier slew of horror films from Universal, which I love as well, of course. The all those films from the 30s and 40s but they were they were they were fairly straightforward in terms of they were mostly presented a straight drama uh, and uh, yeah they had these wonderful costumes they looked absolutely fabulous on the on the big screen uh, they worked in a very small studio from about 1951 until 1967 uh, they worked in this small studio bray bray studios which was essentially just a country house that they gradually added outbuildings to for sound stages, and then they'd add another sound stage. And even by the time they left in 1967 or late 1966, it wasn't you know it wasn't a huge studio. It wasn't like Universal Studios or or like Pinewood Studios, which is one of the big, or Elstree, which were the big studios in in uh, England at that time. It was just a little country house. They originally started just filming in rooms. There weren't even sound stages. And then by the time they were doing Frankenstein, they'd built their first purpose-built soundstage. By the time they did Dracula, they built a much bigger soundstage so they could build the interior of the castle. They, had a, they built a back lot so that they could do the, you know, the, the outside of the castle and all, put all these iconic sets on their studio. But it was still an incredibly small space. Uh, and somehow, with the talent that they had, um, they, they managed to, to make all this stuff um, look really quite high budget really quality the costumes the sets the lighting it looked like something lush and quite epic for what it was which was really low budget horror but it but it had the quality and so they continued in that vein if you'll pardon the pun uh, from the 1950s <laughs> right through to the to the 70s making those gothic horrors and that's what they're they're most remembered for today and i'll shut up and if you have any questions <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can get in there and it's no it's nothing to do with hammers 
just to clear that up. <laughs> you, you, you've answered several questions that I had uh, jotted down along the way, which, you know, you, you, you touched on it. You know, what, what makes a hammer horror film a hammer horror film? And, you know, touching on those those costumes and the sets and the, the lush color and just mind-blowing what they were able to pull off with just a little bit. Now, when did Hammer stop making films and why did they stop? Well, Hammer Hammer continued um, with a, a really diverse range of films through the 60s, meeting with varying degrees of, of success with the horrors. In the early 60s, after that initial run of Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, all of which were tremendously successful worldwide... And then they had a few a few duds where, you know, they maybe broke even, but it it didn't have the world worldwide success that they'd hoped for, such as the Hound of the Baskervilles, as it was sort of Sherlock Holmes with Peter Cushing, and and it was a fantastic film. Fans love it today, but you know it kind of broke even, but it it wasn't the absolute blockbuster they'd hoped for. Even with the the added horror elements, it wasn't quite as horrific as as audience had wanted, and it failed to get the X certificate. And so there's films like that. And then in the early '60s, they did The Curse of the Werewolf. Um, they did The Phantom of the Opera, all with sort of dwindling returns. They weren't flops by any means, but they failed to set the world alive or alight the way that Dracula and Frankenstein had. Um, so they did lots of deals with studios where uh, American studios would finance a whole series of films. So they did a lot with Columbia in the early to mid-60s. They had a deal with Fox throughout the mid-60s. Uh, and and they met with varying degrees of success. Um, and then towards the nineteen uh, late 1960s and early 70s, um, I think there's probably a variety of factors that led to their decline, but the big one was simply that the British film industry generally was just in really dire straits. I mean, the, Britain was on the edge of a recession uh, going into the 1970s, and so economic the economic situation just was not good for any film company. And if you look at any studio or company from that period, they were all struggling. They had to they had to cut their budgets down. Um, I think maybe after they left, arguably after they left Bray Studios, which was the house studio I mentioned, at that time they had a certain continuity with the production because they used the same people, they worked in the same place. It was almost like the same little company, the same little family as some of the cast and crew would des- describe it, going from film to film, a bit like a, a repertory company in the theatre or something. And then as the 70s came along, uh, Bray became, uh, the Bray Studios became too expensive to, to maintain as their own facility. So they started renting space in other bigger studios. And in a way, they became a bit more anonymous. Uh, they started getting a lot of other producers on board in an attempt to find the market that was going to work for them. And they tried a lot of new things. And to be to be fair, they were quite bold. They did some really wacky thrillers. They did this thriller called Straight On Till Morning, which is kind of a bit psychedelic, and I'm not sure it quite works. It has its fans. But they, they were quite bold. They tried, a, they tried one of their last horror films in the 70s was Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, which, again, is tremendously popular with fans. But it was a new, a quite novel take uh, on on the the vampire legend and it was it was quite bold of them to go down that route but it it, it didn't really work and they were looking for something that was going to save them from the general decline that the whole film industry was experiencing and unfortunately they put out a lot of uh, not just low budget but actually quite low quality films at that time and i know some fans would disagree but there's films like especially around 1970 71 there's films like scars of dracula and horror of frankenstein which are just embarrassing. You, to me, they look like you know the sets look like cardboard. The lighting's all wrong. They've got no atmosphere. Uh, the, you know, the scripts were sometimes bad. And unfortunately, a lot of people in America, in both America and England, both sides of the Atlantic, have have maybe seen those films, and they can't. That's hammer horror to them, uh-huh. and so they don't necessarily remember the quality of the earlier films and they think yeah cardboard sets and you know crappy scripts and bad acting 
And really, that's just a handful of films from that time when they were really struggling to survive. And they did make a handful of really good films throughout the 70s. But it, it was it was almost curtains on the entire film industry at that time. And they declined and declined. The uh, films became fewer and further between. Uh, the head of the company, James Carreras, who was um, the son of Enrique Carreras, who'd founded the company with Will Hammer back in the 1930s. He actually, um, he's, he handed over the reins to his son, which his son, Michael Carreras, was a great producer. He also directed a few and he wasn't quite as good a, a director at all. But Michael Carreras finally got his hands on the company. Uh, but by the time his dad handed it down to him, it was on its last legs and uh, and Michael Carreras, he tried everything to to save the company, but eventually they made a, a couple more films in 1972. Then they uh, then 1973 they did a deal with the Shaw Brothers in in Hong Kong, who were who had made all these uh, kung fu films. They did a kung fu Dracula mashup, which is an absolute <laughs> laugh riot. It's so much fun. Uh, and then they followed that on with another sort of kung fu thriller that brought sort of Americans and English cast together with a Hong Kong cast. And it's not a great film, but it's fun. And then eventually they did their last horror, 1976, To the Devil a Daughter with Christopher Lee. And again, that's it's one that uh, some fans love it. Some fans really don't care for it. But that was their last horror film for about 30 years uh, and it wasn't to it wasn't to be resurrected until uh, sort of the, the the late 2000s when they came back and made I, I can't say off the top of my head how many films maybe six or seven uh, feature films something like that from about 2009 to uh, to 2014 and that's all the company's done since since apart from they they did the tv series in the 1980s they did hammer house of horror and also hammer house of mystery and suspense which were kind of anthology tv series sort of which generally tended to be contemporary set uh, horror or thriller uh films uh i think mr hammer house of mystery and suspense actually aired in the u.s as fox mystery theater so possibly a lot of people don't even realize in america that that was a hammer production but that's basically what hammer did throughout the throughout the 80s was those couple tv series and they were always promising more feature films and to get back into horror but it didn't happen for another 30 years Wow. So, so there you go. Have, have I given a good idea of the timeline there? Of absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it would be unfair to blame Hammer themselves for the decline because, unfortunately, it was just it was everywhere in the seventies in every industry in Britain, um, and especially in the film industry. It just it just all went down the pan. It's funny you mentioned the, uh, the 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 lesser films in the early seventies, and, and you said that a lot of people that is what they hold in their minds is the the Hammer horror films, and I I am in step with that because uh, at the age I am, uh, I remember the Saturday afternoon movies that the local networks would show. Every once in a while, you would get a Hammer horror film, and typically they were these early '70s with the the beautiful, beautiful actresses. Uh, there was a there was a sexiness that Hammer started dabbling with in these early '70s films, and uh, absolutely, yeah, I, I definitely and, identify with that because that's just what I was exposed to the most. Yeah, and and of course, I, I mean that was present from the very beginning of Hammer, but obviously in a much more subtle form. They couldn't quite have the same level of sort of you know nudity and such that that hammer became associated with later on but even in dracula which was the second of their big uh, gothic horror films and and one of the most success uh, one of the most successful even that had a kind of sexuality and sensuality with the big bosomed actresses and the cleavages and the almost the you know the the seduction of of Mina by Dracula played by mm-hmm. Christopher Lee of course and Melissa Stribling who played Mina she gave a, an absolutely sterling performance as well and when he seduces her to bite her it's 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 just like a sex scene you know it's it was it it really made vampirism sexy in a way it hadn't be uh, hadn't been seen in cinema uh, thus far so all those all those features the sexiness uh, sexiness and the the big bosomed peasant girls and the very voluptuous vampire girls things like that they were they were present in those hammer horrors from the beginning but yeah as the 70s came on 
uh, uh, came along and as as some of those other producers came in who were sort of bolder and more willing to exploit the the appetite for sort of sexier films on, on the British market they started to introduce nudity and then you even had some that had the full frontal nudity like um uh, vampire lovers is a classic example it's got ingrid pitt in it who is very well known these days she's sadly not with us anymore but she's very well known as a, one of hammer's main screen queens although she actually only made two uh, two hammer horror films she did come back for a brief appearance in one of the 2000s um sort of film slash series but yeah she went full frontal in that film the vampire lovers uh so yes that that doesn't stick in my mind because i'm a gay man so but in terms of uh, you know if if you're a a fella if you're a guy growing up around that time or or watching them on tv later yeah you're not going to forget ingrid pitt's breasts or any of the other stars around that time madeline smith who's still with us um you know, she, I mean, she was a great actress as well, Madeline Smith. And then you had the Collinson twins who were in Twins of Evil. And they not only put in a good performance, but yeah, they showed off a bit of flesh as well. And yeah, <laughs> I, people remember those. And I can't begrudge, I mean, they were very beautiful women. You can't begrudge people, um, you know, remembering those things. They do uh, They do stick in the memory. Dave, you, you talked about the... Um the family atmosphere of a lot of the uh, actors, uh, almost like a, a theater troupe uh, constantly mm. appearing in the same films. Let's talk a little bit about the importance and the impact of uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing on Hammer Films. Yeah, uh, Peter mean, Cushing was um, was actually already a, a real star in the UK uh, before he came to Hammer Films, mostly through, through TV, uh, because he'd been in a number of BBC serials. Probably most famously, he was in... Uh, in the BBC adaptation of George Orwell's 1984. And I think that was in about 1954, I think, something like that. Uh, and as as was common with BBC productions at that time, possibly with most TV worldwide, it was filmed live and, and put out live. Uh, thankfully, unlike a lot of other tv serials of that time we do still have a copy it's not lost or anything and it's a it's a fantastic adaptation of the orwell novel obviously quite disturbing and horrific in some regards and peter cushing played the character of winston smith and that coincidentally was also scripted by nigel neal who who created the character of quatermass and so peter cushing was really famous for tv roles like that um he was quite the star um, he, he wasn't so well known in film. He did films, but usually, you know, smaller parts or supporting parts. Uh, but of course, Hammer were pretty low budget. So when they when they came uh, to make The Curse of Frankenstein, they wanted someone who was not only a quality actor, but someone who could have a bit of box office draw because of his stardom on TV. But obviously, it couldn't be a first rate. Uh, star because you know they didn't have the budget uh, for an a-lister so they got this fairly well-known and extremely talented uh, tv actor peter cushing and that was the first of cushing's hammer films he turned in a brilliant performance as a uh, as baron frankenstein uh in fact so good that they made another i think another six or seven uh, frankenstein movies that kept him as the title character baron frankenstein and he was the real villain of that series unlike where in the universal frankenstein series you had a different frankenstein in in every film and it was the monster that stayed the same usually boris karloff or later lon cheney i think bella lugosi did it one time um but in the hammer series it was that continuity of having peter cushing as the increasingly villainous baron and he really was quite uh, quite a villain I know in the Universal film you had Colin Clive in uh, 1931. You had Colin Clive as the, as uh, as Henry Frankenstein, and he was quite a benevolent character. In fact, they took probably because of the censors or something, they took great pains to portray him as a really nice character. They even had him survive at the end, so it was a happy ending. They sort of tacked on that ending, didn't they? With Universal, um, but in the um, in the Hammer film, he was a right 
am I allowed to use mild cuss words? Of or course, do, or should yeah. I avoid them? I, he was a bit of a bastard, and he increasingly became a, a really vile bastard. As the uh, oh, you've you've opened the floodgates now, and uh, it's going to be bastard this and bastard that. Sorry, uh, <laughs> he became increasingly vile as the way he manipulated people and used people. Uh, as and then eventually. The film titles reflect his descent because by 1969 you have a, a, a film called Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and it's like, well, he's the real villain now. It's he's the monster, and then you had Frankenstein, the monster from hell, when he's he's not even so much a villain there. He's just sadly absolutely insane. He's completely lost the plot. Um, so Peter Cushing was the you know the the continuous element in that series, and Christopher Lee at that time. Uh, he'd never had, he'd never found stardom, uh, because he had, for a, for a British film actor, he had relatively exotic looks. He was from Italian ancestry, and he did, so he didn't have that classic British film star look. And he was also unusually tall. He was about, uh, estimates vary from about six four to fit six five. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, very big. And and he wasn't well known at all. Uh, but of course, he put in such a good performance as the creature in The Curse of Frankenstein. And he, he was an excellent actor with his eyes, and he did a number of roles. I mean, this one sticks out, and The Mummy as well, where he played played the mummy under a lot of makeup. But you can see the tragedy and the sadness in his eyes. And, and those performances really endeared him to the public. And so Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee became, I guess for Hammer, a kind of dream team, and they made a number of those early Gothic horror pictures. Uh, they made together. So they did Dracula, where they were Van Helsing and Dracula, um, even though Christopher Lee, for that film, it was his second film as a uh, for, for Hammer, and he was, he was only fourth build. But really, he became an internationally recognised star on the basis of those few films, and, and he particularly became a very popular in Europe. And for a time, Christopher Lee uh, went away into Europe and stuff because he was a he was multilingual. So he went away to it, uh, Italy, I think, and he made lots of films in Italy uh, and France. He made films for Mario Bava and directors like that. So certainly, they made a lot of films in that early period in the sort of late nineteen fifties. Um, and then, actually, surprisingly, when you look at the Hammer films themselves, those actually made by Hammer. Um, they only appeared together very sporadically throughout the 60s, but they did appear together in other productions. There was a kind of quote-unquote rival studio called Amicus that made some fantastic horror movies. They t they tended to make uh, anthologies set in contemporary settings, uh, and they they tended to be more sort of thriller than supernatural Um uh, or Dr. Terror's House of Horrors was one, and it was kind of four stories in the one film with Peter Cushing playing this terrifying doctor who linked all the stories together. And that was a Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee vehicle. They did come together for some more um, uh, for some more Hammer films throughout the 60s, made a lot of Hammer films for other... Uh, sorry, made a lot of horror films for other companies. And then in the 19, uh, 1970s, when Hammer were trying to uh, get a grip worldwide again in this increasingly difficult market, they came together again for, for a couple of um, Dracula films. And Hammer actually updated the formula. They had the um, incredibly enjoyable... Um, but quite bizarre Dracula AD 1972. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's quite uh, quite an odd uh, quite an odd film in that it brings uh, brings together sort of late 60s, early 70s hippie London culture. It's mm. actually a bit more 60s, but obviously the the producers were all a bit older, and I think they thought, <laughs> oh, it's 1972. This is what kids are like these days, and it was already looking a bit at. Up, uh, outdated by the time they made Dracula AD 1972 and it's all kind of supposedly teenage kids saying hey wouldn't it be hip and groovy if we had a satanic ritual um, yeah that'd be a, a great giggle as they keep saying throughout <laughs> the film and, and then they have this satanic ritual and uh, oops a daisy uh, Dracula's brought back to life and here he is in this abandoned church in the middle of uh, hippie groovy 1970s London and then they made a second film, which I think is far better. They made Satanic Rites of Dracula, yes. where Dracula becomes the head of a, an international corporation and tries to uh, tries to take over the world by um, uh, sort of poisoning it, poisoning it with some sort of virus, not you know, sort of pre-COVID um, worldwide virus that, with Dracula at its helm. Um, so they were quite fun, and those those brought 
the team of Cushing and Lee together uh, once again uh, as you know the, the characters that I think they're probably most associated with to this day of Van Helsing and Dracula, the um, classic arch nemeses, aren't they? Um, so Hammer, I mean Hammer experienced success in all kinds of genres and with all. A, a whole bunch of different stars, and I think it's it's easy to overestimate how big a role Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee played in, in those films, especially uh, during the especially during the sixties. I think it was mainly in in those early days when they were finding their feet as a as a producers of gothic horror that they produced their most iconic performances together. Um, and then they every every once in a while they'd be reunited either by Hammer or other companies, and so to, sort of in because of the great quality of a lot of those films, they've been associated together in the public imagination um, ever since. And of course, they were very fond of one another too. And if you see clips of them um, on occasions when they got together, um, they clearly got on really well. Uh, and I think that's helped cement their cement their image as a as a duo as well. Dave, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. Oh, no. <laughs> what is your favorite Hammer horror movie and why? Oh, that, that, that's not an unfair question at all, because for me, it's it's no contest. I, I started watching uh, horror films in the in the mid 80s on, on TV. And the first ones I watched were the sort of older black and white ones. I think the first one I ever remember watching which is not even that horrific by today's standards, was the uh, um, the 1941 film of Jack, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I used to read the books as well alongside them. And then in about 1986, and I would have been about eight or nine years old, and I saw in the in the Radio Times, which was the uh, sort of TV listings magazine that you get back then for the BBC, I saw that they were showing a film of Dracula. And I'd read the book or an abridged version of it written for kids. And uh, and I thought, oh, you know, I just hope my dad is not going to say, no, 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 it's, it's a monster movie. It's too grown up for you. Uh, so I said, dad, 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 please, please. And we had a, one of the few families in our neighborhood to have a sort of VHS or VCR player, you know. So I said, dad, please record it for me. And, and, and he allowed me to. And uh, so I got up really early the next morning. It was like waking on Christmas morning, waking <laughs> up at the age of eight to run downstairs and put in this recording from TV the night before of the 1958 film of Dracula with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And I was absolutely mesmerized. And it's it's never left me ever since. And when it was it was restored by the British Film Institute in 2007 and released to theaters, and I went to see it in the theater then, and I was literally on the edge of my seat. I just find it such a well-crafted film. And of course, with Hammer's low budget, you know, they couldn't go off to Transylvania and film, you know, in big castles. They could, you know, the, it, it was all very much done on a budget, and the story, uh, the way they, the way they abridged the story, was very much to cater to that low budget. But they did it so ingeniously, and for me, all the elements come together: the script, the performances, not just Lee and Cushing, but also, as I've mentioned before, Melissa Stribling as as Mina, uh, who is the main female lead, um, and then you had this wonderful wonderful uh, musical score by James Bernard, who scored a lot of the Hammer Horror films. Um, and it had this very memorable film, that, uh, very memorable theme that actually echoed the, the name Dracula. Dracula! Not literally with the words, but the rhythm. Wonderful music. Uh, wonderful sets and costumes. It's just everything just came to perfectly together. Uh, for that occasion and I, I I watch it at least once a year if not more often and often delve into it just to watch clips and things like that and for me it just all comes together perfectly so that's always going to be my number one uh, Hammer film so that is say, an easy question for me I have to say it is one of my favorites too it's just a very uh, extremely well done uh, production of a mm. very familiar story and it's just you, you absolutely it's without it's without flaw in my opinion it's really well done uh hey dave uh now for someone like chelsea who has never seen yeah. a hammer horror film before what would you consider to be a good jumping off point where should someone start um i, I get asked this question a lot and it's a difficult one because maybe in some ways it depends um <laughs> on what sort of films uh you like already 
so for example, if you're big on say you're say you're big on the Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe films, then you'd like those colourful gothics. So maybe, yeah, start with one of those early ones like The Curse of Frankenstein or Dracula. Um on the other hand, if you're much more you know, into your sort of, uh, if you want the bosomy stuff with lots of blood, lots of violence, uh, lots of bosomy women, then there are some really great 70s ones. Twins of Evil is an absolute classic, and that was 1971. Uh, it has so much going for it. It's a, it's a very colorful film. It's, it's quite camp, which is another thing people say about Hammer films, which a lot of Hammer films, yes, they are very camp. That can mean so many things. Some of them can be very camp. Some of them are just very serious and straightforward. Twins of Evil is one of those that is, you know, has a few scenes bordering on hysterical. But for me, not in a bad way. I think the production values are very high. And it's about these uh, twin girls who come to stay with their puritanical um, a puritanical uncle played by Peter Cushing and Peter Cushing gives a really anguished performance actually and he just in real life he just lost his wife which absolutely devastated mm. him and, and really really affected him for the next um, 20 odd years of his life quite severely and unusually affected him uh, and you can really see that what was going on in his life at that time had made him very gaunt and and weak uh, he'd, he'd aged a few years in, in just a few months um, because of what he was going through, and he and so he plays this character of this puritanical uh, witch hunter, witch finder, and vampire hunter very well. Uh, and you've got a Count Karnstein who lives in the castle, so you've got your head vampire, uh, and it's just an all-round. It's got all the elements. It's got wonderful sets. It's uh, wonderfully lit. It's got this brilliant musical score that's kind of like Elmer Bernstein Western score meets old-fashioned hammer horror uh, film music um so twins of evil is if you like a good gothic vampire flick that's really entertaining well paced and has all the elements of a good hammer horror twins of evil is a great one if you like something a little more old-fashioned sort of in between the draculas and the twins of evil they made some great ones in the in the mid-60s they made plague of the zombies probably the last of the old-fashioned type of zombie film just before um uh, Night of the Living Dead, Romero's Night of the Living Dead, and of course, in those old, old-fashioned uh, films, they were quite often woven in with themes of sort of voodoo rituals and 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 people taking uh, colonization and slavery and things like that. And that actually, that film actually is quite a good original take on those old themes of sort of the voodoo zombie thing. Uh, and that's that's a really quality. Um, a really quality uh, zombie movie from Hammer. And then, of course, there's other sort of horror or horror-adjacent titles that are that are really stylish and really entertaining. Uh, one, for example, from 1965, Betty Davis came across for, for two Hammer films, in fact. One, a uh, sort of black comedy, The Anniversary in 1968, but she'd, she'd been to England previously in 1965 to make one called The Nanny, in which there's a young boy who's accused of... of he's, uh, he's been... He's been sent away to a kind of boarding school psychiatric facility because he's been accused of uh, accidentally killing his young sister and um, but he's got something against the nanny and the the tagline on the posters read who would you trust the nanny or the boy and i won't give it away but betty davis <laughs> is fantastic as a nanny and it's a really tense thriller and it's a contemporary setting so it's not gothic horror but it is very much in a hammer gothic vein it's got those it's got that shadowy atmosphere and the, the terror and the horror it's very atmospheric very stylish so i'd recommend the nanny you've got occult thrillers the devil rides out it's my second favorite hammer film uh christopher lee plays a good guy for a change and he's he's got a friend trapped in a satanic cult and so the the film is kind of his quest to rescue his friend and some other new friends uh from the clutches of this um chap makata who's this very um very suave leader 
of this very refined English satanic cult. Um, and that, so that's a fantastic film. I, it, it really depends, you know, if, if when, when people come to me, I usually say, well, you know, what sort of films do you like? What, what are the ones that appeal to you? Because there's so much in Hammer's vast back catalogue of films, um, and there's so many I could recommend. But yeah, Dracula, Plague of the Zombies, Twins of Evil, The Nanny, they're ones that cover the whole scope of, of what Hammer did in the horror genre. What would you consider to be the most underrated film out of the Hammer horror. Ooh, now that's more difficult one. <laughs> I think probably, I think probably, uh, because I, I mean, underrated suggests not necessarily a masterpiece, but something really good that just doesn't get much attention. And I think they made a lot of lesser-known films, like for example, in 1959, they made one called The Stranglers of Bombay, which you can tell by the title. You know, they they wanted it to, to get an audience by making it sound sensational. The Stranglers of Bombay, you know, you're expecting murder and all that. It's actually quite a sensitively done drama thriller um, uh, about a man who works in the in India. He works for the British East India Company uh, as um, his, his military. And you've got these, um, uh, the thuggy cult around the time. Uh, which were a sort of religious cult that went around strangling people and stuff. It's it's got a historical basis, but obviously it's not it's not entirely rooted in history. Uh, the story, um, but it's a really good, uh, quite sensitively done drama thriller uh, about this um, soldier trying to solve the mystery of all these all these victims of this cult. And it's not a tremendously well known film. But it's really well done. Shares its director with uh, the director's Terence Fisher, who who did most of the the ones we think of as the classic gothic horrors like Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Hand of the Baskervilles. So something like that, or some indeed some of the thrillers that again had some of the horror stars in perhaps, but weren't strictly horror. There's one called Cash on Demand, which is almost like a, a, a quite a a low key play. Uh, from 1962 and it stars Peter Cushing as a bank manager with sort of Scrooge-like tendencies. It's set at Christmas time and he's not a particularly nice man and he becomes the victim of a heist and it's again it's it's very low budget. It's almost all filmed on one set um, but it is it, it's very tense and very entertaining. So some of those lesser known films yeah and they tend to be in black and white because they're the they're the lower budget films um, so I'd say look out for some of those uh, lesser-known titles because they can often be quite good. That's fantastic. I, for me, my uh, my favorite underrated one would be the Abominable Snowman. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd have you know if I'd had the foresight, I'd have recommended that too because okay. it is one of those that again it wasn't intended to be one of their bigger budget ones because it was you know it was a black and white film. It, it's sort of sandwiched between Frankenstein and Dracula. Mm-hmm. But for me, because of also because it's a very well crafted, quite intellectually uh, interesting script. Also by Nigel Neal, who did the Quatermass films and scripted several other Hammer films later, and of course Peter Cushing, who I think was Hammer's best actor. Um, he he just turns in such a good performance. Yeah. What is it? If I can turn the questions back on you, what is it about the Abominable Snowman that you um, like? Just very smartly written. Um, I love the themes of isolation and this descent into madness um, more yeah. than more so than the monster itself, which you know they very cleverly kept it off screen, uh, with the exception of the severed arm until the very end of the film. It was more yeah. about these actors in there, and they're they're just just dipping into insanity. And I thought that was fantastic and very smart. Absolutely, and for me, those those final scenes. They pack a real emotional punch as well. The fact that Cushing almost gets there, he almost makes it, you know, that yeah, there, there's, yeah. there's a lot of uh, uh, suspense that, that has a quite a good payoff. So mm. I like that one. I just don't think that I, I totally agree. Think about it enough because it is an early piece. Uh, it is a black and white piece, but yeah. um, just really smart. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> You know, one of the things about uh, being in America is that viewing Hammer films is not as easy as it used to be. Um, no. There, there, are, there are a few that are on YouTube, which I'm not the biggest fan of watching films on YouTube, but you can find a few there. And uh, a couple are on like Tubi or Roku. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Um, yeah. 
it, it's difficult. I mean, the, the issue is because Hammer was such a small company, they always worked with other studios and other producers to make mm-hmm. their films because they needed the financing. They weren't generating a, a lot of income for themselves. So they would have deals with different studios. So you've got a whole bunch of Hammer films that are owned by Warner. You've got a mm-hmm. whole bunch owned by Columbia, which is now Sony. Uh, you've got a whole bunch that are owned by Fox. And so they're all with different distributors, all with different rights attached. They've all got different rights in different countries. So it's not like there's one, even though Hammer is still going, it's not like Hammer Films, the company, just owns all those titles outright. In fact, they own very few. Right. Most of them are divided up among a whole handful of of different studios. Um, so the likelihood of them ever coming to one uh, one streaming service is unlikely. And of course, it's, we've had loads of really good Blu-ray releases. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, for Hammer fans, depending on uh, depending on what uh, disposable income they've got, that's not always an option to you know buy every single release because that can get quite expensive. So it, it'd be an absolute dream to have a streaming service or something, but it's very unlikely to happen. It's just the, the rights are too, far too convoluted, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. and as, so as a result, there's a lot of uh, Hammer's library that I have not seen or had access to. I've, I've, ca- yeah. you know, I've, seen, I've seen most of the early ones, and I've seen yeah. about you know, half of the ones from the mid sixties to the early seventies, but yeah. uh, the, the, the stuff that's in the middle, um, I'm very lacking because I just can't get my hands on them. Yeah. And of course they, I mean, there's certain ones that get, you know, shown on different channels, but again, but again, that's, you know, that depends on the channel and whether you have things on, uh, you have particular channels in your area. Um, and of course, you know, not everyone has the same network showing the same, films in their area and you have because of the rights issues you tend to get the same films being shown by the same channels over and over again and then there's certain titles that are just elusive you know that just never seem to crop up on tv well that's all i had to ask you i think we've uh we've pretty much uh given chelsea plenty to chew on and uh consider with it with regards to hammer and uh this is going to be a, a great jumping off point and kick off to our October film. So, uh, Dave, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, just to plug that, uh, handle, you are hammer Gothic on Twitter, correct? At, at hammer Gothic on Twitter. And I tend to, I mean, I'll sometimes tweet some very sort of mainstream fan info and stuff. And other times I'll just go off on a geeky tangent about the most minuscule, trivial aspects of productions and things, but hopefully people will find it's a, it's a fun account to, to follow and learn a little bit more about hammer horror and also some of the non horror productions as well, which are yeah. fascinating. Yeah, full disclosure, uh, you you and I have talked about this offline, that, uh, you know, for the longest time, I assumed you were an official representative of Hammer just because of the position of authority you speak from. I just was blown away when I learned you were just a fan account. Well, um, uh, thank you. I think that's, um, I mean, it's a great compliment. It's really that I'm just so geekily obsessed with things that I can't help but ramble at length as as if I, uh, you know, know a lot. But I, of course, I'm always open to learning. So, you know, I, I, people come along who know far more about certain aspects of it than I do. And I enjoy getting into those conversations and sometimes eating humble pie as well, because, you know, sometimes you think you'll know something and then someone comes along who's got knowledge in a, in a different related area and says, oh, actually, you're wrong about this or that. And uh, so you learn something new every day. I can ramble at great length. And of course, you've been very gracious in allowing me to ramble about Hammer Horror today, one of my favorite subjects to talk about. But uh, I'm still always learning for this. So there's so much to know about hammer well again we appreciate it we couldn't have asked for a kinder uh, more generous guest and you've been wonderful uh, to share your time with us today and uh again anybody who wants to uh, learn more about hammer films or just get some great content on their twitter feed check out at hammer gothic that's going to do it for this week we're just very excited to have the kickoff for october films and uh, we hope that you will continue to listen and remember to uh, subscribe rate review the podcast as always we sign off by saying please remember to watch chop retrofit, retrofit.